Support for this podcast is provided by Cressa. Cressa is the occupier's champion, the world's premier corporate real estate advisory firm, exclusively serving startup businesses and major global organizations alike. As a Portland pillar for over 25 years, Cressa partners with its clients throughout the entire project lifecycle, from workplace strategy and discovery through the deal transaction and project management delivery of space. Cressa partners without conflict and applies integrated expertise to make your business better. Go to cressa.com Portland to connect with the Portland advisory team. From that cast creative, I'm Dan Bruton, and this is the PDX Executive Podcast. A show where I talk with inspiring leaders who are shaping the future of Portland, Oregon. Every week, I sit down with business executives, startup founders, and community leaders to dive into their career journey and get insights into the impactful work they're doing in our slice of the great Pacific Northwest. Hey, everyone. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the PDX Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Bruton. Uh, Excited to have my next guest. When I heard about their book, the title really jumps out out at you. So it's the title of the book is Relentless, The Forensics of Mobsters Business Practices. It was published uh, last month, and I'm excited to have the authors, Jerry Zimmerman and Daniel Forster, on with me today. Uh, Welcome, Jerry and Daniel. Thanks for having us. Pleasure. So... You know, I want to read this quote before we get going from the book. Um, and this really kind of jumped out of me when I started reading the book. Anyone running an organization, be it a retail store, sitting on a school board, a manager in a large corporation or not-for-profit faces the same challenges as organized crime, how to attract, retain, and motivate people. I just thought that was so interesting. So let's back up and talk about uh, the, the book and how it started uh, but before that, we're going to get a little bit of background from each of you. So, Jerry, I would love for you just to tell folks a little bit about yourself and um, how you know Daniel, maybe, too. Uh, thanks. Uh, again, uh, I taught uh, financial uh, accounting, managerial accounting, organizational economics at the University of Rochester Simon School for over 40 years. And uh, Daniel was one of my students back in the 90s. Uh, all of my research and teaching has focused on this general question that you just stated. How do you uh, attract, uh, motivate, retain self-interested people to work in the, uh, 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 to achieve the strategy of the organization? And all of my research has been focused on lawful organizations, be they not-for-profit or for-profit. And uh, my avocation has always been uh, organized crime, from watching that on TV, The Untouchables, The Sopranos, uh, to the Godfather movies. Uh, they have the same problem. And in fact, most of those movies end badly uh, for the bad guys. Uh, but when you look at the, uh, these organizations, most of them survive very long periods of time, even though the mafia is greatly diminished now. Uh, bosses in New York are still being arrested and incarcerated or acquitted. Uh, and so that was the genesis of the book, which was formulated by the question of how do they survive despite the enormous law enforcement resources directed at their demise? And what most people don't realize is that you know these are businesses but yet they are not allowed to use uh, 
the legal foundations and institutions of capitalism, like banks, uh, the courts. Uh, they can't go to federal district court and sue each other over bad uh, crime deals. Right. And so uh, that was uh, what started me on this quest about 10 or 15 years ago. I'll let Daniel turn turn on, uh, on his involvement now. Thanks, Jerry. So, Dan, thanks for having us. Um, I went to the University of Rochester as a mighty English major, and uh, when you get to the University of Rochester, you are going to have your life changed because you're going to have, whether you like it or not, whether you knew it or not, you know, hopefully you should have known it, um, it's dominated by microeconomic view of human behavior. And frankly, it changed my life. And there's nobility in a psychological view, sociological view. Uh, the economists have uh, a lot of data backing up what they talk about. And I studied with Jerry um, and I'm a practitioner. So I never, I didn't take the academic route. I, um, I took the applied route where um, for more than 25 plus years now, I've been advising CEOs and boards and leadership team. I've been doing it since I was way too young, probably because Jerry Zimmerman taught me how to think and how to help leaders to think. And um, my, not only did I have a chance to reconnect with a mentor who changed my life, uh, along with his co-authors, uh, Jim Brinkley and, and Cliff Smith, but I had, a, I had a chance to push back on my mentor and to tell him when he graciously sent me an early draft of this work that was truly, truly visionary, I think, how he, how he, how he conceived of it. What I was most fascinated about these groups, not only how they think about economic principles, but I um, am a devotee and arguably an expert in the space of corporate culture. And the connection of culture to strategy has been nine years of my life building the company through that I, um, I'm now just the founder of. They've, they've knocked me out as the CEO. So I, I'm, I'm the uh, of counsel to the firm now, I guess, okay. in, in a certain sense. It's my baby. And thinking through the cultures of these uh, mobster groups was it was unbelievable when you contemplate the core values of institutions and norms and behaviors, and I'm sure we'll get into it. It was too delicious to pass up. Uh, so Jerry and I went back and forth for a couple of years and here we are with relentless. Well, let's talk about some of the, the groups, organized crime uh, groups that you, you profile. Cause I think intentionally it was three or four. I'm sorry if I'm four. not remembering correctly. And if you could, okay, four and Jerry, which ones were those? Uh, the Mafia, uh, the uh, Sinaloa Cartel, the Hell's Angels, and the Bloods and the Crips. 11, 12 a.m. So how, did you get access to them? Or is this, I know you said in the book, you you know, you just poured through a lot of biographies and other just, you know, research things. But did you get a chance to talk to some members or how did that come through? It turns out that a number of these organizations, the founders actually wrote autobiographies. <laughs> and a lot, a lot of them were dead now or wouldn't talk to us. We were able to interview uh, federal prosecutors and defense attorneys uh, who knew a lot about them. But the, uh, the public domain is just incredibly rich with, uh, with uh, detailed information that's been gathered by reporters, criminologists, and so forth. So, uh, you know, I've always, uh, my, all my research has always been either 
uh, archival uh, or empirical using data. Uh, I've, uh, so that was the way we, we got into it. And you know, there's probably literally thousands of books and uh, written about the mafia, as well as very detailed uh, news stories uh, from the trials uh, of all of these guys. So uh, the, the sourcing of this material uh, was very easy for the mafia, uh, and, but less so for, let's say, the Bloods and the Crips. Mm-hmm. And I think you, you profiled a few pillars. And so I, you know, I'm not going to walk through every, every part of the book, but I think it's helpful just to, to go over some of these things that, you know, that are themes throughout. So what were those pillars, uh, Jerry or Daniel? Do you, do you mind naming one or two? And we can kind of go from there. Uh, let, me, let me just outline them quickly that uh, in uh, managerial economics courses and, and uh, economists who study uh, organizational economics, uh, they talk about uh, four primary ways that you motivate con- and control people who are self-interested. And first of all, you, you have to assign tasks to them. What decisions are each one going to make so that you can think about the organization chart, which is one of the tools we use to describe who has what decision-making authority. Once you give somebody that uh, the tasks, you then have to measure their performance and reward them. You have to give them uh, incentives. And so the next two pillars of performance measure and rewards and punishments create the incentives. And then the culture piece, which is the fourth pillar, uh, really defines how things are done around here. And that's a perfect segue into Daniel. Yeah, the um, the culture component of it is culture is a big, vast term. And it, economists tend not to locate that term, although uh, every time I look at a deal in which a company gets overpaid for, um, I've come to believe that a lot of the overpayment that happens is because of the value intrinsic in the aligned and constructive behaviors that are the underpinnings of a high-performing culture. Culture is, uh, Jerry used one of the definitions, but the, the, the way I also look at it is norms, values, behaviors, assumptions, symbol, action, rhetoric, just, just some of the abstractions through which you look at it. Uh, and for these groups, uh, particularly every organization, by the way, has a culture, whether or not the leadership team knows how to talk about it, whether or not they uh, give sustained management attention to it. Southwest Airlines and Chick-fil-A spend an inordinate amount of time uh, from the leadership team out focused on their culture. Um, I've, I've had a couple of law firms I've interacted with over time, and I hear about infighting or fighting a Guess what? They have a culture. They just haven't described it, haven't defined it, haven't codified it. And the conflict is a misalignment on any moment. And by the way, there's two value, two components there I just want to put in the room. There's, there's constructive cultures, there's passive cultures, there's defensive cultures, and there's aggressive cultures. And what's fascinating, we didn't, I had, we didn't get the chance to measure the cultures of these organizations. And by the way, Dan, there's no glass door reviews for the Hells Angels. So it's a little bit, <laughs> yeah. that's why we called it a forensic analysis, but there's a tapestry of language and symbols and ideas that we were able to weave together here because one of the reasons why these groups will outlast Goldman Sachs, Facebook, and Google, one of the reasons 
is because of the unbelievable amount of attention they give to the cultures that they are a part of. And that idea of belonging, which is a, which is a central component of every, every person that's listening to this po- podcast, we all seek to belong, whether it's in a school, in a company, or hopefully as part of our country, which I don't know if we'll get in that, there in the conversation yeah. today. But we long for that belonging, and these groups have done an enormously good job of creating a culture of belonging. So that was uh, the chance to go back and forth with Jerry on that and to take some of the, I don't know, a couple decades worth of work I've been doing now helping to drive culture change and to think about these groups. By the way, Dan, you have to think about something that this good Catholic boy never had to think about before. Um, If if Southwest Airlines values fun and humor, that's two of their core values, um, the mafia value immorality. (laughs) Mm. They do. So, and they're unapologetic. By the way, all of our mobsters groups have a value, but they also value things such as respect, earnestness, resourcefulness, uh, and righteousness. Those two are some of the core values of ripping across the group. So it was pretty, when you put these four pillars together, you step back. What uh, Jerry said in a conversation we had recently, the book is really a head fake because in the sense we're teaching you through the most unexpected people the same principles that I, that Jerry and I would bring to a lawful organization. Right. Well, let's, let's dig into, I mean, you, I think it's a good time to talk about, and it's a good time to release the book, uh, Belonging. And what does that mean right now with all that's going on and all this, we're on Zoom right now, everybody, all my, my personal clients and I work with is on Zoom. Like what, what are your, we can riff on this. What are your thoughts on how that's change or more important than, than ever, Daniel, right now? Or um, I know we're going a little bit of a tangent, but it's, you know, it's, it's important. It's interesting. I'll answer the question because I've been thinking a lot about belonging, but I'll answer it by starting with the fundamental premise of economics. And this is what Jerry taught me in the first week of knowing him. He taught me to read a paper called uh, On the Nature of Man from two, two giants, Jensen and Meckling. And they said that all of us, the three of us on this call and the, who are, and the many that are listening to this podcast, we are all resourceful, evaluative, maximizing individuals. And I'm not going to litigate all four of them, but there's a shorthand for it, which is we have insatiable wants and needs, any one of us, before we show up at the firm. We value, uh, when we find out what we intrinsically value, we value more of it, not less of it. And we're, guess what? We're all pretty darn selfish. That's how, that's how this goes. So um, now let's get to your question about belonging. I think belonging um, has to reconcile. We all have to go to work and you'd want to go to work in a place. I'll pick on work as the, as a proxy. You all, you want to fit in, you want to fit in at the school. You want to fit in, in your community. And so we do a certain amount of, I think, uh, aping of behaviors that, that will, will carry us to belonging. And what's fascinating when you study these groups that we've gotten into and the companies, when I think about the companies that have sustained for the long term, Southwest Airlines is not a differentiated service at all. Airlines are their commodity in many, many ways. Yet Southwest Airlines is going to emerge from this crisis and people will fly with joy again on those planes. And I'd argue it's because of the sense of belonging and camaraderie and constructive behavior among the tens of thousands of employees that will make Southwest Airlines rise up before Delta or, or before mm. American Airlines. So belonging, I think, is essential. 
and the economist in me, which I'm not an economist. I play one on television when I'm around Jerry. <laughs> the economist in me says that you, you have belonging, but make no mistake, self-interest drives what each of us does on a given day and explains even why we're on a podcast right now. Self-interest has to be reconciled when you talk about belonging. Yeah, thanks, Daniel. This is a good jumping off point for for the economists, and we'll switch over to, um, you know, Jerry from just your thoughts on this. Uh, let's go back to the Daniel's point. Uh, he mentioned he's doing some work with law firms, and uh, I've done a fair amount of expert witnessing and have interacted with a lot of big law firms, and uh, they're all self interested partners in there. Uh, they are usually type A personalities, especially the, the litigators. And all law firms face the common problem of fighting over the spoils. That uh, you often see law firms disintegrating when some senior partners go off or some junior partners go off and start their own firm because they think they can make themselves better off than uh, staying in the existing firm. There's always a fight between the rainmakers and the litigators and the people who are actually generating the billable hours. And so these law firms have this enormous conflict of interest. Uh, you know, it certainly derives pleasure uh, if you're a, a member or partner in one of these law firms to say, I am a partner in XYZ, which is you know, a widely recognized firm versus going off and starting your own firm. But the mafia and especially and the Hells Angels have created an incredible culture where people want to be in these organizations. They want to belong. They, they want to be able to walk around their neighborhoods and having people look at them and saying, you know, that guy's a made man or that guy's a Hells right. Angel. Don't mess with him. And so belonging. Uh, as an economist, an organization that can offer its members a strong sense of belonging gives them something they want, and they're willing to make trade-offs for that, just like they make trade-offs between leisure and work. Uh, they make this trade-off between, I want to belong to this organization, and, and that goes back to, to Daniel's expertise. How do you create a culture that people want to belong to? Mm. Hmm. Um, well, for folks, you know, m most of my audience are, you know, business leaders or you know, own small businesses. What are some of the one or two things that you got out of this that are most important to you that you would share to them? I mean, obviously we want them to read the book and, and pick it up. I, I, like I said, I'm not finished with it yet. Uh, but can you share just a couple other takeaways? Tying, uh, that question to the previous discussion, uh, recognizing that both your customers and your employees are self-interested, you really have to dig down into what their preferences are and give them what they want. Uh, Jeff Bezos understood that better than almost anyone else. He knew that people wanted easy access and quick delivery of products. Uh, and uh, the Hells Angels understand that that they give their members a, uh, a sense of belonging and they go on, on, on these long motorcycle rides, they right. like to brawl. And um, uh, the, the key thing, the key takeaway 
for small business owners. And my daughter runs a, a, a spa and she read the book and she now understands better how to attract, retain, and motivate her therapist while at the same time giving her clients truly uh, rewarding and unique uh, experiences at the spa. Hmm. You said, you know, something about just Amazon, I think at the beginning of the book, you said originally, I think they were going to call it relentless or they bought relentless.com and it still forwards to Amazon today. Right. And that word in the context of you writing the book and maybe Daniel, just culture you can share. Um, that's a word I've been thinking a lot of, about a lot, but it, it's kind of got a negative context in some aspects of the business culture today. Like are we, we're, we're pushing back and relentless and grinding too hard. It's more about the flexibility and different things. So uh, what's your thoughts on that, Daniel? Well, um, the amount of change that's being thrown at leaders today, small, medium, and large businesses, um, I'd argue we are facing shocks at a faster pace and a more consistent pace. And the role of technology, just look where we are in this pandemic and look what mm -hmm. has accelerated. Um, sometimes we've had, we had, we've had decades of resistance to things where our country didn't want to do telemedicine. Well, I did six telemedicines within uh, months of this pandemic happening. Right. And I'm watching insurance companies balk now at pushing that back. I, I think that cat's out of the, out of the bag. Mm -hmm. So relentless, just to comment on that, I think any leader today to face these shocks that keep coming at us um, has to have that mindset. And it doesn't mean recklessness, but mm -hmm. relentless means you are able to apply and realize things like the four pillars that we talk about every day. These four pillars give you an option on keeping folks in the firm motivated and directed at this in the same in this towards the same goals. To your small business leaders out there, I will say, don't my one of my best pieces of advice to small leaders who are look, seeking to grow their companies: the norms, values, and behaviors you started with as the founder of your company. The moment you get past five employees, ten employees. Yesterday, I spoke to a company with twenty employees. And they had this incredible, long, well-defined list of, a, of their culture. And it was, it was enormous. And I called them on it. I said, how many, if I quizzed you all, do you all believe all these things on this list? Because apparently that's what you stand for. And the founder gave me permission to say, well, what do we do about it? And I said, well, there's a chance now for you all to reset the social contract, to mm -hmm. ask, are these the right values? Because the, the founder gets to dictate them on day one. On day 500, the founder has to let go and realize what Jerry has taught me, which is it's not about me projecting my value set on these employees. It's about finding and discovering in them what is their self-interest and mm. how can I get them to care more about my firm? I see a lot of founders who struggle with founderism, I call it, where they just can't wait to be telling everybody and pushing it out. People don't want you to push it out. They wanna be heard, they wanna be listened to. They want to shape a shared vision. A shared vision is a word that I'm teaching a lot of leaders to be thinking of, which means you've got to humble yourself and recognize what you value as the founder. They're not going to value. And your job as a leader is to be relentless to discover their value set. Otherwise, you're going to get pretty pissed off and you're going to say, how come the millennials don't do this or the Gen X doesn't do this? The answer is because they're self-interested. 
And maybe you have a chance if you're humble enough as a leader to co-create with them the type of culture that all of you want to be a part of. Wouldn't that be wonderful? And does that take what type of mindset? That takes, a, that takes openness, humility, and you have to be relentless because the day you declare the new one, I promise you there's going to be a new insatiable want and need of one of your employees hiding around the corner. And you can't be shocked by it. You have to have a relentless mindset that says, I'm going to listen and I'm going to synthesize that into who we are, not push back against it. And Jerry, who's actually, some of the folks? Oh, go ahead, Jerry. I actually uh, had a conversation uh, with a real estate agent uh, yesterday. I was doing a little consulting and uh, uh, he was telling me that in, in around the Denver metro area, that there's no house houses for sale. There's no inventory to sell, which is making his business dry up. And, you know, I to pick up on Daniel's point, my bottom line was you, you have to be relentless in understanding what's going on here. You, that uh, seniors are staying in their homes longer. They don't want to go to senior living centers. Uh, there's a migration out of these certain states, in particular, New York City, New Jersey, even California, are trying to go into low density uh, areas where the schools are open and, and uh, uh, people are now working at home and they want bigger spaces. And so they're, they're trying to buy bigger houses, which is reducing the inventory. And so my point to him was, you really have to be relentless in understanding what the new normal is gonna be. He kept thinking, well, the inventory is gonna go back to the way it was two years ago. That's not clear to me. He wasn't being relentless in mm. trying to understand what these market forces are and how self-interest is driving this. And I'll, I'm going to get at one book in there yeah. just for your listeners to think into. A yeah. Great, great strategist and someone who I've been lucky to study uh, and, and think about, uh, a gentleman by the name of Thomas Barnett, who studied, he looks at strategy on a grand scale. He looks at it at a national security level. He would describe... Uh, and haven't talked to him about the pandemic, but major shocks like this, 9-11, the financial crisis, COVID, they inevitably reveal what he calls a rule set reset, a rule set reset. You and I did not get on airplanes on 9-12 the same way we did on 9-10, rule set reset. So that, my, that's, that, that mindset makes you understand that we are, we love confirmation bias as leaders. We love comfort. We want an, an easier pathway. Many of us value an easier pathway to a dollar than a hard pathway to a dollar. The reality is well, this pandemic and the experts that are out there, uh, Bill Gates is already advising us, there will be another in our lifetime. Will it be like this? I don't know. But you have to begin to understand that in a rule set reset, your mindset has to shift. To use our mobsters, these guys don't have long debates about the products and services they sell in the nodal level of their organizations. If it works and there's a vice that they can push into the marketplace, they pedal. Um, as we launched the book, Interpol released a alert, a global alert to all law enforcement. Not shocking, Dan, that the most precious commodity on earth is not Bitcoin right now. It's the vaccine. Do you think the what do you think the mobster? Of course, they're getting involved in the vaccine. Okay. Of course, they are. Shocked us not at all. Rule set, reset mindset makes you think. How can I? How can I anticipate 
the strategy, the under the choices we make. And don't be deluded that yesterday is anything like what mm. the today is to use to use the example Jerry just talked about. Rule set reset. I love that. I mean, I've been thinking about that constantly. The nine eleven references, I mean, spot on. Everything changed. So well, change and it's, it's not yeah. evident. Go ahead, Jerry. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, to Daniel's point, uh, you know, we've given examples from the lawful world. Uh, look at how the mafia w- was so quick to pounce, pounce on uh, new things. Clearly, the prohibition the, of, of alcohol in the 20s uh, supercharged their business model. But it wasn't just prohibition. It was World War II comes along, and with it was rationing and coupons. And, uh, and all of a sudden, the mafia saw an opportunity to counterfeit, steal, or bribe and sell on the black market uh, coupon books. They moved into Wall Street uh, and did financial scams. They moved into the the labor unions. Once unions got strong, they got in and corrupted them. They were relentless. They saw how the new world was changing. El Chapo Guzman, um, who was running the Sinaloa cartel, he saw that when the the oxycotton pill mills were being shut down in Florida, that there were all these addicts who were going to need uh, their their fix. And so he he created something called China White heroin mm. that he started importing. And so my real estate agent has to be as relentless as these mobsters in seizing on new opportunities. Who are some of the winners and losers out of the? I mean, I know we're straying up from the book a little bit, but it has the themes of it um, going forward from this pandemic and economically. Companies, maybe, or industries, or and again, I'm not trying to crystal ball it, but I'm, you know, love your your thoughts. Well, I can tell you, I think who the losers are going to be. Uh, the losers are going to be people that have a lot of commercial real estate. Uh, I uh, the winners are going to be. I think homeschooling uh, places or platforms. I think a lot of people uh, are in certain cities are getting disenchant- disenchanted with their uh, educational systems. Mm-hmm. Uh, Daniel, you've been following this a lot more than I have. Why don't you pick up on that? Well, it's interesting. I'll, I'll comment on a, not from an industry per se, Dan, but from a culture perspective. Every single company in this country has suffered loss, suffered trauma, suffered pain. Um, we are, we're not frontline healthcare workers. These people have been through hell in many instances with sets of trauma around them that they will be grappling with psychologically for the rest of their lives. PTSD is the language set to use there. We've watched our, uh, the, local, the local markets around us, and we've suddenly begun to, res- I think, respect those who help to feed us, supply us. Um, there's, there's nobility in it. These people didn't get a day off, and many of them were told to go in to environments where it was not self-evident how vicious this virus was. For those who've been lucky enough to be knowledge workers, the three of us, um, there's something absolutely that decays a culture when the three people on this call can't be in a room together. There, Zoom is a terrible proxy for human connection. It's useful. It has utility. 
But in this pandemic, I've watched firms, we work with a lot of service-based firms, tens of thousands of people have been hired to companies and they've never met their boss. And here's wow. what, here's the embedded, I think, problem to come for many, many companies. I wish I could show a map of what I'd call the post-COVID diaspora of what's going to happen to employees in this country. So imagine we said, everybody get in the boat that you're in right now. Watch two years from now, the unbelievable reset in the economy that's going to happen. When millennials, one of my nieces right now is with five of her colleagues in Costa Rica in a gorgeous home with fabulous Wi-Fi, working for a company that she's never met her boss at. Now, do you think if Jerry Zimmerman tells her, Caroline, you got to come to the office tomorrow and we need to see you every day at 7 a.m. Because that's the rule set he might have thought. I'm picking on Jerry. Jerry would never say that. He's a smart man. But there is a reckoning to come because she has precious specific knowledge. She is rare in this country. We don't have enough of her. Mm. And she just helped to add value to a firm with never meeting her boss. So there's a reset and a diaspora to come here that I don't think companies are talking about. It's almost like the tsunami. The water's about to come back in and the Carolines of this world, they're gonna vote with their labor. Mm. Yeah, it's Before we wrap up and this is really interesting. I had the former COO talk at one of my events of Nike, sorry, former CEO of Nike. And I asked him, I said, well, um, younger people at Nike must love this because they work from home. And he said, in a culture like Nike, these are the people that are really getting left behind because young people like to come to Nike. They work there because Serena Williams is coming. There's Michael Jordan. The older people love it people that have kids and stuff. So it, it just depends on the industry, but I'm, I, it's really, there's a big dark side to it and a tsunami, like you said, of, of this to come. So. so the only way to, to grapple with that is to be relentless, to be open, to be, to not believe that the rule set of the past is the one, there's a new rule set unfolding and the winners will be those who recognize flexibility, who recognize we're living, we're going to have hybrid, we're going to have geography may not matter, there's going to be times where you need everybody in the all hands meeting. Innova I, I always say that innovation is a contact sport. I'd rather be in front of a whiteboard with Jerry than on a Zoom chat, to be honest with you. But this world has fundamentally changed. We don't even have the language set, Dan, to truly understand what this market reset is. So the last piece of advice I'd have for your small business owners, read my first book. Take the time to do what General Petraeus taught me. Get the big ideas right after this reset. It's going to help you to have a resilient organization. Hmm. Let me let me add that a quick two cents on that. And, and if you look back over the last 200 years and, and uh, you look at uh, how the economy and how the world has changed, it's changed in absolutely unpredictable ways. And so when you ask the question, who are the winners and losers? I should have answered it. I have no clue. <laughs> I don't know who's going to innovate what. But I know that there are hundreds of millions of people out there, and a lot of them are very smart. And there's going to be another Bill Gates who's going to come up with a revolutionary platform called Microsoft, or there's going to be uh, Steve Jobs out there who's going to come along with products and services that no one can, no one even knew they wanted. Uh, and and when there's so much disruption, and at the same time we have so much technology available. Uh, as building blocks, that we're going to have a world here in five or 10 years that we're going to look back on and say, 
I, I never saw that coming. Yeah. That's what well, well, Jerry and Daniel, it's a fascinating book. Thanks for you know sharing uh, with us all the way here in Oregon. And so where can people find you? Where can people go to and get, you know, more information about each one of you in the book? The, the book, like everything else is on Amazon. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just type in relentless Zimmerman or relentless Forrester. Uh, I have a website. It's uh, www.geraldzimmerman.com. Daniel? And I'm uh, danielforrester.com with two R's and my company through.com, T-H-R-U-U-E. We, we apply all of the principles of the four pillars and more. So there's a lot of content there that I think folks can, can enjoy. Great. Thank you so much. Pleasure, Dan. The PDX Executive Podcast is a production of ThatCast, a Portland, Oregon podcast agency that partners with brands to create custom podcasts. You can learn more at thatcast.com. And please take a moment to subscribe and rate the podcast as well. 